so this is quite cool there's two stones in there and you, you just adjust here to either make the stones closer together or wider apart and if the stones are closer together you'll get a finer flower but it will heat up considerably so it's interesting for you to maybe just feel the, the heat of the flower coming out I'll turn it on Welcome to Serial from Farmerama. This is episode four. The Miller is missing. Could you maybe just explain again what this is that you just milled? This is Miller's Choice, which we've just collected from Mark Lee's farm in Shropshire. He's just given us a sample of a cleaned grain that he's grown and the question he posed to us is, is this good enough? Is it clean enough for him to sell directly to bakers and millers? Because he's never sold directly into these markets before. So I think we've already established that we're really happy with how clean it is. So just in his honor, we'll make some pancakes and taste them and then send him some proper feedback. <laughs> in the last episode, we explored the multiple mutual benefits that can come from rebuilding connections between farmers and the communities they serve. But milling is a key link in that chain. And in many places, it's a missing link. Mills can be a crucial interface between farmers and bakers and farmers and consumers. But most places don't have a local mill anymore. For farmers like Mark, who no longer want to sell into a faceless commodity market, but instead want to grow locally adapted grain with a focus on quality, nutrition and distinctiveness, that lack of infrastructure can be a major bottleneck. So how did we get into this situation? As with so much of this serial story, it's about changes in scale, from small, dispersed and local, to large, centralised and industrial. And it's about changes in technology as well. In this episode, we'll explore those changes and the implications they have for our health, for the environment and for the quality of our bread. Then we'll hear from a new wave of millers who are stepping up to be that missing link. They're working in a range of contexts with a range of technology, but they have a shared purpose to rebuild our local milling infrastructure and to change the way we understand and value the product of those mills. Flour. I mean, fresh flour is a different product and you, you can really taste a lot more when you go straight from the mill like this straight into a pancake batter, for example. If, like me, you've always thought of flour as an ageless bag of dusty beige powder in the back of the cupboard, it might be surprising to think that it could instead be a fresh product, full of flavour with traceable local provenance. And that's partly because that kind of fresh flour isn't possible in an industrialised system. Kim's tiny tabletop mill exists at one end of a very broad spectrum. At the other end are the huge industrial mills that produce the vast majority of flour consumed in the UK, in shop-bought bread and pastries, and in our home baking and cooking. Large-scale, centralised processing, distribution and retail relies on flour being a stable, uniform product with a long shelf life. And as we'll hear, in order to achieve that, compromises have to be made. Compromises on flavour and on nutrition. So I've just sieved out, you can see like the outer bran. It's just some very big pieces of bran. We could leave them in there, but they're probably not that digestible without any form of fermentation. 
and we've still got a very brown, whole grain, kind of healthy mix there. During the Industrial Revolution, there was mass migration from the countryside to the cities. Without access to land or even to kitchens, these newly urbanised workers could no longer grow or make their own food, and there was a need for cheap bread. This coincided with the opening up of Britain to grain from abroad, and this imported wheat was harder, meaning higher in protein, and better suited to mass-producing this cheap bread. Here's Andrew Whitley from Scotland the Bread. And that feeds through into milling technology needing to change because the grains, the specific grains being grown in continental climates like Russia, Ukraine, Argentina, Canada and so on, Hungary, they were pouring into the country at low prices and the traditional local stone mills were A, situated in the wrong place and B, didn't have the right technology to grind these things very effectively. They were set up to grind the grains from the farmers in their area. And so Joseph Rank and his ilk came along and put up massive mills on the seaboard dotted around the country. Liverpool, up in Cumbria, Silleth, you know, lots of places where they could bring big ships in with lots of grain and that grain was hard so they had to exploit roller milling which was designed to strip out the bran and the germ from the white stuff in the flour and from 1870 onwards that was a very quick transformation of the milling technology. So... A change in scale and scope, from small and local to large and centralised, but also a change in technology, from stone milling, which was more suited to the softer wheats grown locally, to steel roller milling, which was able to cope with the harder imported grains. Here's a quick biology lesson. A wheat grain, or any cereal grain, is made up of three main edible parts. There's the outer skin, called the bran. Then there's the germ. That's the part that would sprout if you planted the grain. And there's the endosperm, the starchy white stuff that makes up the bulk of the grain. The endosperm is the energy store. The most nutrient-rich parts of the grain are the bran and the germ. Here's Anne Parry from Vellinganol Watermill in West Wales. What's generally accepted is that stone milling on horizontal stones, you obviously necessarily grind all the grain together. So even when you sieve out a white, you've got all the nutritional benefits of having the germ in there because the oils have been spread out. What happens in a, in a modern milling situation with a roller mill is that the grain is gradually reduced, the outside is stripped off and layers and layers are stripped away until you get to the white end of sperm and you get a good quantity of fine white flour, which is what a lot of people are after with a roller mill, and you've separated out the bran and the germ. If you want a whole meal from that, you have to mix everything back in in the appropriate proportions. The crucial point is this. If the nutrient-rich oils from the bran and the germ get spread through the flour, which is what happens in a stone mill, that means the flour doesn't keep as long. An industrialised bread system demands stable, long-lasting flour, and roller mills can deliver that. But however convenient the switch to roller milling was from an industrial point of view, it soon became clear that it also had huge health costs. From 1870 onwards, virtually within 10 years, all the flour that people were making into bread was coming off roller mills so they had access to this finer purer white flour which of course had so little nutritional quality in it that even within 10 years of that people like Thomas Allenson the doctor who set up his stone mills in Castleford in Yorkshire in order to try and address the the health consequences of this flight from wholeness and 
60 years on, uh, the famous nutritionist Jack Drummond, who was one of the people who was sort of architect of the Second World War nutritional plan to stop the milling of white flour, partly to conserve wheat, but partly to up the level of the basic bread, which was called the national loaf. He was pointing out in a seminal work called The Englishman's Food that for 60 years or more, people who relied on white flour for their basic carbohydrates in their diet, which was most people in the UK, were not getting enough vitamin B or vitamin A, pro-vitamin A, to survive physiologically. And that was not surprising that people commented on the obvious ill health of people on the streets in the 20s and 30s, you know, working class people. So a compromise was eventually hammered out to fortify white flour with calcium uh, in the form of chalk, which 250 years before had been regarded as an adulterant and criticised for that, and it suddenly reappeared as something that you could put back into bread to fortify it. Iron, in a form which is generally recognised to be not assimilable to the human body, so it's a complete nonsense, and two B vitamins from synthetic sources. And that's the situation that we are in now. In short, flour from industrial roller mills is so devoid of nutrition that the law requires it to be fortified with calcium, iron and vitamins B1 and B3. The Real Bread campaign refers to these as token nutrients, as a sticking plaster that obscures much more fundamental underlying problems with our flour. And the irony is, of course, that some of the nutrient-rich parts that are removed from our flour, like the wheat germ, are then sold back to us as expensive supplements. So, when it comes to flour, the tail is wagging the dog. The demands of industry, of technology, have come to determine the nutritional value of our food. So, instead of restoring these lost nutrients with synthetic proxies, how could we retain more of them in the first place? If we want our farmers to be growing more nutrient-dense grains in healthier soils, as well as celebrating local variation instead of minimising it, how can our milling infrastructure facilitate and encourage that? Technology is part of the story, but as we'll hear, it is only part. The title of this episode, The Miller is Missing, comes from discussions at Bread as a Commons, which was a gathering of bakers, farmers, seed breeders, journalists and food professionals that took place in spring 2019. It was a common refrain, expressing both a frustration at the lack of local mills and a feeling of potential. The feeling that those missing millers are a crucial part of the grain economy puzzle, and that when that piece starts to slot into place, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. But why, in many places, Is the miller missing? Here's Kimberly Bell from Small Food Bakery. Baking just requires your hands in a bowl and some flour and water. And somehow we've managed not to kill off all of our small-scale farmers. They've just been struggling along trying to feed their small-scale practices into a mismatched industrial system, but they're still there. I feel like the millers aren't there anymore because they've been wiped out by the much bigger industry. In many cases, the parts of the milling we've been able to preserve has really been in the context of historic monuments. So we have windmills and we have really passionate people operating them, preserving them and working them and making, in some cases, exceptional flour. But they're really doing it with historical interest rather than looking forward. 
So I think there is this gap between those historic monuments, which are fantastic educational tools and really great, I don't know, they offer illumination, if you like, as to what we've lost. And then there's these huge sort of faceless mills, like industrial roller mills, and to some extent industrial stone milling, where everything is depersonalized or dehumanized and we don't really have access to them and you can't really do things on a small scale the farmers can't really preserve the identity of their crops through these milling systems it feels to me like it's easier for the farmers and bakers to get together and make changes quite quickly because we exist on a human scale already but milling requires well first of all it's a skill and we've got big skills gap and second of all, it requires investment in infrastructure. So quite a commitment for someone to make. Why would you take the leap of starting a small-scale flour mill? I think I understand what it takes to want to be a baker or to want to open a bakery. I can personally relate to that, and I can spot other people who might be motivated to do that. And I've met loads of great farmers, and I can see what's happening in farming. I have no idea what might motivate people to start a mill. I don't know what kind of people they would need to be to enjoy that as a profession and to really passionately engage with the other two big stakeholders, the farmers and the bakers. So I think it's a really interesting conversation to talk about who are the missing millers because I don't know where they're going to come from. I can't wait for them to turn up. <laughs> they need to get here really soon. <laughs> and the good news is they are starting to arrive. It's about time we met some millers and found out what kind of people they are and what motivates them. As we'll learn, they're working in different situations with different types of mills, but they're united in their intentions and their goals. I'm Anne Parry. I guess I'm the miller at Vellinganol Water Mill, which is probably why we're having this conversation. <laughs> Vellinganol is a 17th century watermill in West Wales in a village called Llanrusted, which is about eight miles south of Aberystwyth on the coast. It's one of what were four watermills in the village. It hadn't worked since the 1950s and we came to live here in 2006. Weren't expecting to be millers at all. The water wheel was intact but wouldn't turn and there was an old mill pond which only filled with water when there was a flood in the river. And I say to people when I show them around the mill, but you know, you can't actually live with an empty mill pond by a river without wondering whether you can get water back into it or not. And so we kind of spent the first year playing about and damming the river a bit and getting the water back towards the sluice gate and managing to fill the pond. And then one thing kind of led to another, really. We got a full mill pond and then we looked and wondered whether we could get the water wheel to turn. And once the water wheel had turned, we'd got very into it by then and we're, we're just fascinated to see whether we could actually make the whole kit work again. Beginning of 2009, at that point we got it to work and then we sort of had to think about what what we meant to do with it because I mean so many mills are restored and you know so what that, that was when we had to we started asking ourselves a bit bigger questions about what it was all about. For Anne and her husband Andy it was not about opening a tourist attraction I worked as a, ser uh, a cereal pathologist, it sounds really weird, cereal as in, gra as in grains. I looked at grain diseases and had always been interested in organic growing and all that kind of thing. So, so I had that sort of background. And then over the years, I'd done a lot of baking as well. Yeah, initially, because we'd never milled before, the first thing we did was to buy just 
what we understood to be decent milling wheat because when we did produce flour, I didn't want it to be the wheat's fault. If it didn't work well, it had to be our technique that needed improving. And when we kind of got to grips with that, our ambition was to do what the mill always did, which was to, to mill locally grown grains. And that was kind of when I came up against a dead halt because the idea of growing anything that might be decent milling wheat in West Wales has long been forgotten, really. People just assume that it's wet, that the fields are small, that any kind of wheat that you grew wouldn't be up to it. And any farmers who do grow, they grow for feed wheat. They rarely think that their grain meets milling specifications. Last year, around six and a half million tonnes of UK-grown wheat went to feeding livestock. That's around half of the wheat produced in the UK that year. But milling wheat fetches a higher price than feed wheat. So why would farmers choose to grow food for animals rather than people? Well, in short, because it's a safer option. Industrial mills impose stringent requirements on their suppliers. For example, the minimum protein levels they set for grain are higher than bakeries actually need them to be. That gives the mills leverage over price. It allows them to reject perfectly good grain when there's an oversupply, which is most of the time. What those strict criteria do not include are factors like nutritional content or flavour. It is possible to make bread using softer, lower-protein wheats, the kind of wheats that can be grown in areas like West Wales. Where necessary, industrial baking does it by using synthetic additives. Artisan baking does it using human skill and time. Felingannel and the village's other three mills did used to be supplied by local farmers. So could that once again be possible? What we have got here, besides the mill being fascinating, is that we've got the old day books, which show all the farmers in the area, because it was a tithe mill, bringing their grain in to be milled. And a hundred years ago, every farm in the area was growing wheat and was bringing it to be milled. Either people's tastes have changed radically and they were prepared to eat rubbish bread or we needed to rethink the kind of grain that we were assuming was good milling wheat. We were chasing around and talking to people and, and you know, trying to make all the connections we could with bakers and, and farmers. And it became clear to me that the thing about what we do is we're very tiny. It's a big gamble to ask a farmer locally to say, well, you know, will, will you sort of put all this year's effort into growing grain for us? And we can't, we can't promise that we'll be able to buy it if it's not good enough. And we don't know that we'll be able to sell it. And it seemed like an impossible experiment. But fortunately, both Andy and I, we'd worked at what used to be called the Welsh Plan Breeding Station. We still had lots of connections there. And we persuaded them to be sufficiently interested to grow a couple of acres on their organic land of wheat, which we could just try milling with. They put in a modern a modern spring wheat and harvested it and dried it for us. And it wouldn't have met any milling specifications as far as a big mill was concerned, but it was clean and wholesome. And we milled it and it produced a really nice flour. It didn't rise hugely, but it had a wonderful aroma and really good taste. And we managed to market then that locally as a local flour, which, as I say, because people had this idea you couldn't grow wheat locally, we're, we're, the people were thrilled about. That gave us a bit of confidence then to start to start talking to people and, and, and talking to other farmers and looking to see what we could do. Mills like Fallingannel also have power. But rather than using that power to impose arbitrary requirements on farmers, they're instead using it to change people's perception of what can be grown locally. If mills can demonstrate that there is demand for local milling wheats, that can give farmers the confidence to grow them. And in this way, 
a small mill can have huge potential to help spark the revival of an area's grain economy. And it's been that steady build-up then of people getting together. And the more people we've met, you know, it, it knocks on. So that this year, 10 years since we've been milling and selling flour, our neighbouring farmer, just a couple of hundred yards up the road, he came to us in the autumn and he said, well, I've done it then, it's in for you. And he's actually put a field in of winter wheat. So we will all be well this autumn. We will be mill- literally milling hyperlocal wheat, which is um, really quite exciting. Mills like Valangano also have the capacity to experiment with different cereals and to retain the distinctiveness of individual varieties. Broadly, we mill wheat and spelt and rye and now naked barley as well. And within the wheat, it's getting better and better, really. We've got wheat from a different number of small farmers and we've got some modern varieties with a fairly high protein, which bakers obviously like if they want to do something repeatable and they want to know it'll rise well. But then we've got a number of older varieties that we've been milling. Particularly interesting are a couple of populations. I'm sure you've heard a lot about the YQ population, Martin Wolf's wheat from Wakelands. We've got some Miller's Choice, which is a nice population mix of pre-mid-1800s long straw wheats. And we've got that, interestingly now, from two different growers, and it's quite different from different farms and different growing years. All these British wheats are great, they're softer. And it's evident that at the age of our mill, the millstones were designed to mill British wheats, and they're much nicer to mill than the modern varieties. They produce a a really soft, sort of tender flour with a flaky bran, which, um, yeah, it's very satisfying to mill and, and to bake with. Um, you have to adapt your techniques using some of these different flowers, but then, you know, that, that's all part of the adventure of it as well. And then, of course, there's the Hain Gumro story, which is actually a Welsh land race. Hain Gumro, it means old Welshman, and it's a wheat that clung on to cultivation well into the 1930s, 1940s around here, because it actually did produce a crop, even though people, as I say, have lost confidence in the fact that they can produce millable wheat, but it did produce good good wheat. And we're all very excited about the possibilities for milling that in this coming year. And if people can be growing that again on their farms, it'll help them towards a possibly a better regenerative farming model. And you'll have a lot of small local bakers and millers who can supply them. Building all these things together in tandem, that's the difficulty, because as I say, the infrastructure is gone. So my vision would be that we would slowly together build that infrastructure and those relationships of trust again. And, um, yeah, get back to... Let's say reinvigorating a local grain economy. Next, we're off to Fife in Scotland, and we're going from a 17th century watermill to the latest in modern technology. Scotland the Bread's community mill is based at the Bow House, a food hub and production space on the Balkaski estate. It's part of Scotland the Bread's ongoing efforts to find resilient cereal varieties that are suited to Scottish microclimates and soils. As part of that research, the estate is growing several heritage wheat varieties, which Scotland the Bread is milling and selling as flour. Despite the obvious differences in context and technology, we'll be meeting another new miller whose intentions and aspirations echo those of the Parries at Valangano, someone who's milling fresh, nutritious, distinctive flour, and in doing so, supporting the local grain economy. My name's Connie and I work as a miller manager for Scotland the Bread here at Bowhouse. So it's my job to mill all the flour and try and sell it to as many people as possible. 
I found out about the role through the estate manager here and he thought it would be a good fit for me because I was running the market garden just 100 metres down the track and I contacted Andrew and spoke to him about it because I thought, well, I don't know anything about milling, I don't know anything about wheat, how can I do that job? <laughs> but we had a conversation and it seemed that it was more important that you cared about sustainable food and that you could be an advocate for the flour and all the milling technical kind of stuff you can learn if you're a practical person. So that's how I ended up doing it. This is a Zentrofan mill, which is a German model. And I think it's the only one in the country. Sorry if there's someone else who's got a Zentrofan mill. Basically, it's really great technology because it's just one piece of volcanic rock with a hole in the middle. And there's a motor underneath which pumps air up through the hole and the grain falls down into that hole and kind of gets spun around like a cyclone. So it kind of grinds itself against the stone, which is good for a lot of reasons. There's no moving parts, there's no stones grinding against each other with then you've got a risk of sparks and fires and that kind of stuff. So because of that, it's safer so I can leave it on overnight. It's designed to be on 24-7. So that's one of the really good things about it. The other thing is that then it doesn't create that same heat, so it preserves the nutritional value of the flour much better. So we've got really exciting things happening quite soon because the mill is going to be upscaled in a way, so we're going to get a bigger hopper and a bigger bin so that I can do more at once. We have been just doing three different kinds of wheat. They're all heritage Scottish varieties, Hunters, Rouge d'Ecosse and Golden Drop. And those first ones that we were milling were grown in East Lothian by Mungo's Wells. But now, because we moved here to the Balkaski estate last year, we grew those three same grains again, but also some spring ones and rye and some Swedish ones as well. Having a mill on site means it's possible to test those different varieties, not just in terms of how well they grow, but also how well they translate into bread. The reception has been fantastic. Basically, I'm now sort of struggling to keep up with the orders. People are really, really keen. We are working with quite a few different bakeries in Scotland. We're working with E5 Bakery in London. We send a pallet down to them once every three weeks. We also now supply Green City, the wholesaler in Glasgow, and yeah, direct to, to various different bakeries who are closer. What milling operations like this one don't have is a huge distribution infrastructure. But something that's striking about this new grains movement is people's desire to collaborate. There's a feeling that everyone is pulling in the same direction. The main problem for us is that flour is a heavy product, so the shipping is kind of expensive. So we're always trying to find ways of piggybacking on other deliveries. We're working with a bakery in Comrie called Wild Hearth, who are using some of our flour, and they are kindly, you know, on their delivery routes, they might take some flour for us. So just trying to find creative ways to work together because we've got the same kind of goals and to keep everyone's costs down. We sell online on our online shop to individuals and um, at the Bohouse Market as well. So, you know, bakers who are committed to baking real bread and, and sourdough bread love it and, you know, keep coming back for more. Members of the public who we meet on the market, even if they don't know that much about baking, they can tell that the flavour is really different and is, is definitely something that they haven't experienced with other flowers before. So, yeah, the response has been really brilliant. And, I mean, we're so new that I think it's just going to keep building. People are going to talk to their friends about it. And so many people, so many individuals actually who come back, it's because their friend got it for them as a present. And, you know, so I can really see it, that kind of ripple effect. And definitely people seem to be talking more about grain and, and real bread now. So I think we're well placed to get our message out there and make an impact now. Mm -hmm.
Next, we're staying in Scotland, but traveling south to my home county, East Lothian. I grew up surrounded by arable farms, but with no relationship to them and very little understanding of what they produced or how or frankly why. Growing up, I'm not sure I ever actually ate grain from the fields I could see around me. Two people working to change that are Angus and Alison at Mungo's Wells, a farm with its own on-site mill. There was no plan when we started. And there still isn't really a plan. <laughs> I hadn't dreamt of making flour when we started. I'm Angus McDowell. I'm the farmer at Mungo's Wells, where we also have a little flour mill and a little maltings. Uh, I've been running the farm since 1984 and the mill's been going now for about four and a half years. My name's Alison Campbell. I'm 53 and I came into the uh, Mungus Wells Molten Milling when I was, oh gosh, 48, 47. Knew nothing about it at all. Now I can malt and I can mill I do the sales, I, I just love it. There's everything, and it has allowed me to find my passion. Looking round, and a flour miller said to me, have you seen the mobile Swiss army flour mills? I thought he was pulling my leg, I really did. However, we bought a mobile Swiss army flour mill. We'll be releasing a bonus episode telling the full story of the Swiss Army Mill, so keep an eye out for that. Four or five years after we've started, it's now got 5,000 hours on the clock, and it's, that's building up as well. It's, it does a bit more every year from what it did the year before. Somewhere about six tonnes a week at the moment, which is quite a lot of loaves of bread. Mungus Wells produces both conventionally and organically grown wheat and rye flour, as well as crushed malt. And they'll soon be selling spelt flour and oats as well. To start with, it was all grain of our own production. And I said, oh, we'll only use what we grow ourselves. And then we began to get too successful, too clever for our own good. And no, we are buying in. We have a field rented from a neighbour. I'm talking to other organic farmers about getting them to grow crop for us in Scotland. The Swiss Army flour mill at Mungo's Wells is not a stone mill. In a stone mill, you get one chance. You pour the wheat in, it comes through the, between the stones, and then you separate it as best as you can. In a roller mill, the idea is that you crack it as little as possible and then separate off as much as you can. It is much easier to take out one big chunk of bran, the skin off the outside of the grain. It's much easier to take off one big chunk than it is to take out hundreds of tiny particles. Each time it goes through the rollers, it's heating the flour up. Aside from the fact that it crushes the whole grain at once, this is another reason many people argue that stone milling is better. Industrial roller mills heat the flour and high temperatures can destroy key nutrients in the grain. That said, stone milling does also cause heating. In short, when it comes to producing high-quality, nutritious flour, it's not necessarily quite as simple as stone milling good, roller milling bad. In a big flour mill, 
there will be up to 10 passes through rollers and then 10 separations. We only have four passes, so we're getting much less heating of the flour. It does come out warm, granted, but not to the extent that it does. In the big mills, they're having to cool the flour as it's going through. The point is that any technology involves certain compromises when it comes to human health and environmental impact. Arguably, it's more a question of scale and intention. And what Mungus Wells shares with Vellinganol and Scotland the Bread is that they're taking locally grown grains and processing them in a way that strives to retain their nutrition and flavour. Our customers like our flour because you can taste the flavour. It has such a good flavour. The grain that Angus is growing, you can really taste it through the bread. And for that, this happiness is what it's all about because you then you're, you're making other people happy because the product is, is a fantastic product and it's so natural and it's grown. The earth, when you walk on the soil here, the energy you feel in the soil is incredible. And you're producing something that's actually going into people and helping their digestive systems. You know, there's so many positives to this. So, different technologies, different contexts and different scales. What's the shared vision? We're trying to say communities can come together with growers and millers and farmers. And sometimes, you know, farmers and bakers. We've got a, a little mill here which is eminently suitable to be set up on a small farm operation or indeed right in a bakery where the, the flour can be milled and pretty much straight into the mixing bowl, so capturing all the vitality and freshness and flavour of the grain. You know, we sort of nowadays think of flour as a product that we have in the back of our cupboard. It's been there for months and months, but actually in terms of the nutritional qualities, it's better if you can use it as soon as it's milled. People seem to understand that now about like coffee and grinding freshly ground coffee beans. We're really trying to get people to think about flour as a fresh product again. So I only mill to order, really. I don't ever have a stock sitting here, so I try and get it to the customers as fresh as possible. Our best before date is three months from the date of milling to really try and push that message home to people. And so just because the mill is smaller, we just do smaller batches. And because we're doing different varieties, it allows me to chop and change between them depending on what people have ordered. You know, I don't do a ton of one kind and then have it sitting around for ages. One of the advantages of their relatively small scale is that they can process quantities that just wouldn't be economical for an industrial mill. A bigger mill can produce lots of really technical, repeatable flour, but what we can offer is the fact that we can take even as small as 25 kilo samples of grain from a particular field and we can mill that. We can mill a, you know, a, very, a very small crop with a very particular growing season, possibly an unusual variety that wouldn't be milled otherwise, and you get to taste all sorts of grains and flowers that you wouldn't otherwise. And that means they can preserve regional distinctiveness, what wine and coffee connoisseurs call terroir. That was what excited me about this first flower that we milled from the university when I suddenly realised that, I know you can get good and bad flower, but better than that, there's definitely terroir here. Every flower tastes different. Every wheat variety tastes different and it's affected by which farmer has grown it and what season it's been grown in. And I find that really thrilling. It's probably a bit esoteric for everybody's daily loaf, but yes, I find it quite exciting. And a lot of bakers find that very exciting as well. So, um, yeah, it's been great. These new millers can be engaged with their local communities. In fact, they have to be. They're close to their communities and able to be responsive to them. So maybe it's actually less about small or large scale 
and more about appropriate scale, operating at a scale that allows the people involved to know each other, to have relationships of trust rather than purely financial ones. That's how change happens. It means that negative externalities, environmental, health-related, social, can't be ignored or swept under someone else's carpet. In their position as interfaces between farmers, bakers and consumers, mills and millers have huge potential to be catalysts for the rebuilding of local grain economies. Here's Fintan Keenan, a farmer and mill designer, originally from Ireland, but now based in Denmark. I have this idea that, you know, having small-scale regional mills that have a capacity of somewhere between 500 kilos and 1,500 kilos an hour dotted all over the place, not just here in, in the UK or in Ireland or in Europe, but, you know, all over the world where we can start to localise grain economies. So it's benefiting everybody. It's benefiting the farmers, it's benefiting the millers, it's benefiting the baker. It's benefiting employment from people doing logistics, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's an all-round winner, as opposed to having these large commercial mills that are doing... 200 tonnes an hour, and then the grain has been imported from Manitoba or Kazakhstan or Ukraine, which is madness. It's something that we need to address and we need to change the sooner the better, because in the face of climate change, it has to happen. But as exciting as that vision is, maybe we also need to be encouraging or demanding change within the existing system. Here's Josiah Meldrum from Hodmedots. There's a big question about what relocalisation actually means logistically and practically and in terms of scale. Uh, And we look at relocalised grain systems, say, in North America, and often they're watersheds that are the size of the UK. You know, you look at New England and New York and things, and they're calling that their local grain system, and I'm thinking, wow, that means I can count Cornwall as local. And, of course, it doesn't work in that way. We have a very different infrastructure in the UK to the US. We don't have the big elevators that they have. We do have smaller regional elevators and smaller millers still left by comparison to US scale. So we're in a slightly different place, but I think, I think it can be done by creating these connections between farmers and uh, bakers principally, but there are also home consumers who can home mill as well. And once we've demonstrated that there is a market and there's a demand, then I think the infrastructure will follow and that what we lack is a lot of the small processing function. It's just, it's just not there because grain has become heavily centralised. And I think what we still don't really fully understand is what the scale of localisation is. Is it on farm or is it farmers working in collectives uh, in areas and so that they're sharing some of that processing capacity? I think it's probably the latter. But um, my feeling is that grain processing and milling are really specialist tasks and that you need a dedicated team of people to look after that work and that we should, wherever possible, be looking at what the existing infrastructure and skill base is and employing that and refocusing its attention away from commodity production and encouraging them to think about how they might process smaller quantities. We've got some fantastic millers in the UK, but a lot of them are just milling commodity wheats. And I think if we can encourage them and demonstrate to them that there are other ways of doing things, we can begin along this path of of finding an alternative that's better in terms of return to the farm, but also better for our health and for the colour and flavour of our diets. Yeah, I think we're all hoping that grain growing will be sort of taken back out of the commodity market. It would be wonderful if farmers have the confidence and the pride to actually grow local grains again, that we can all work together really on a small scale. So it's it's, it's rebuilding the system from the bottom up really, a series of, of relationships of trust really. 
What we're all trying to do is to bring bread back into the community. Good bread, good cakes as well, um, good pizzas, you know, you, whatever you can bake with the flour. It's the need to bring back this just good staple food. So it's, it's really important that we all band together, if you like, and bring you know, real bread back. That's, that's a really good uh, message to get out there, I think. So perhaps the future of milling in the UK could be a landscape of local mills, some of them in bakeries, some on farms, some in community ownership, some run by farmers, some by specialist millers, along with changes in our existing industrial mills, so that at least some of their efforts are diverted away from turning commodity wheat into inert, nutritionally impoverished flour, towards taking sustainably grown grains and producing flour that's tasty and nourishing, and all of them producing fresh flour to be consumed as locally as possible, not trucked around the country. I feel like it it will come, but it's probably the last part of the puzzle in a way, because we're asking someone to really take a leap of faith. And I think it's probably up to the farmers and the bakers to first demonstrate that we can create a marketplace for someone to take that risk. In the next episode, we'll be meeting the bakers who are doing just that. Final question. What would you say to any naysayers who doubt that it's possible to relocalise UK grain economies? Wait and see. <laughs> Cereal is possible thanks to generous support from the Roddick Foundation. Subscribe to Farmerama to hear the rest of the series. You can find us on your favourite podcast app, on SoundCloud or at farmerama.co. If you enjoy the series, please spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Serial is produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. A huge personal thank you to everyone who's contributed to Serial. In this episode, we heard from Kimberly Bell, Andrew Whitley, Anne Parry, Connie Hunter, Angus McDowell, Alison Campbell, Fintan Keenan and Josiah Meldrum. As well as these voices, there are lots of other conversations that have helped to shape this series. Thank you.